Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. We have started a teaching series that has been such a, a, a cornerstone in this ministry, one that is repetitive that we have at least uh, once in a year. Uh, just this phase, and, and, and in, I'll be honest to tell you, the very first time the Lord gave me the instruction to equip God's people in the discipline of apologetics, um, it, it was not necessarily a response to what happens every June, which is Pride Month, uh, in the West especially. Uh, that was never the attempt. Somehow it's, it's, should I say, supernaturally coincided with that event. And, and for us, it is exactly... I would not say exactly the same thing, but it's similar for us because it is a pride month um, for us as believers in Christ. We are proud of what we believe. We are proud of the truth. Um, even in a world that counteracts what we believe, a world that is against what we believe, we are proud to speak about it, even in a world that might be, might be silent on those things. And so um, that's what it kind of is for us. And by the grace of God, we will keep doing this year after year. And I will see you grow stronger, wax stronger in the faith. In Jesus' mighty name, shout amen if you believe it. Amen. This, this is what I, I desire, that we're not just having these things as routine, but they're actually impactful in your life. I truly trust God and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in your life. Praise the name of Jesus. Today we're going to start the teaching series, Asking for a Friend, because you do have those friends asking questions. People want to know, tell me. And we, we tend to believe the lie that people really don't want to know and we're being nosy and we're being intrusive in their business and we, we're, we're poking our noses in places we ought not to be. But to be honest, from my own experience, and maybe that's not yours, people want to know. And, and, and the reason why people may not know what you know or believe what you believe is because they didn't have enough answers on the things that you know, and they tried to find them somewhere else. They picked up some book on, on Scientology or, or, or listened to some YouTube channel of some atheist or, or, or entered into a course in university to study evolution theory and, and, and the microbiology at, at a, you know, an, an atheistic or agnostic space. And, and those things have led people to be where they are right now. But I can tell you, the, the average person wants to actually know the truth. If, if life actually matters, if people actually matter, and, and the things that we do on this earth actually matter, then people truly want to know. Let's start with this scripture, Matthew chapter 22. Such a powerful scripture. It's one that you have to, be, to bookmark if you haven't done so already. Uh, it's a reiteration by our Lord Jesus Christ from Deuteronomy chapter 6 from verse 5. And, and I found this. I, I, the first time I, I ever read this um, in this light was in the year 2016, if I'm not mistaken. I'd already started my journey in apologetics, but this gripped me so much that it was so compelling I had to share with you. Matthew chapter 22 from verse 37 to 38. I hope you're with your Bibles. Please open them right away, right away with your writing materials as well. Beautiful. See, I'm in for a good time. And, and, and what makes a great service is not because there are some nice punchlines dropped or everyone shouting hallelujah. What makes a great service is that the word truly plants a seed in your heart. 
Or maybe there's a seed already, the word then furnishes it and allows it to germinate and grow. That, that you are convinced of the truth that is being shared. That is what makes a successful service. And I pray that that's exactly what we have tonight. All right, Matthew 22 from verse 37 to verse 38. This is what it says. Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Powerful stuff. This is the first and great commandment. But look at this place. Let's go back a bit. You shall love the Lord your God. How? Just by how you feel for a time. Just vaguely. Just the way people have said you should do it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. And with all your mind, this is a triple emphasis, which you see in in Greek writings and Hebrew writings, where one thing is mentioned three times just to give you how emphatic it is. To love God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, it's basically talking about the same thing, but in a deeper sense. What I'm seeing here is this. When I read the scripture for the first time, it's telling me when loving God, your mind has to be involved. Your mind, your thinking... Your reasoning must be involved. When you come to church, it's not the point where, you know, you've been in the world where you've had intellectual conversations, logical conversations and debates, and you step into the church and you say, look, all logic, intellect, vanish. It's time to be blind and stupid. That's not what happens in Christianity. And many people think that about Christians. That somehow we walk into the church and our minds are not effective. We're just going for emotionalism and sensualism. And some people do that. But not us, amen. We come ready with our mind involved. God, what you know and believe about God matters. Your knowledge about God is important in your relationship with Him. You don't just come. I mean, this is a question that my wife asks me ever so often. And God in His wisdom has helped me. It's not a trap question, but it can be. And God in his wisdom, in his majestic wisdom, because he doesn't want me to sleep on the couch, um, allows me to answer these questions so wisely. I've never slept on the couch, FYI. Um, I will never. Amen? Amen. Glory to God. <laughs> um, this is the question. Do you love me? It comes, it comes that way sometimes. But more importantly, she, she asks this question, why do you love me? She said, eh. why do you love me? That, that question comes often. And, and, and many times I, I say the cheesiest, corniest things. But imagine I responded to her and I said, well, do I have a choice? I have to. Or I say, I don't know, but the feelings are there. So it's just, it's just that. And okay, so what do you like about me? I don't know. You just seem cool. I just like you. Okay, what do you like about my stature? What do you like about my personality? What do you like about my talent? What do you like about this? My passions, my, my ambitions. What do you like? Just, you're cute. <laughs> Imagine that kind of response. You'd be like, how long have you been dating? And it almost feels like you have no idea who I am. 
You have no idea what I stand for. You have nothing to, to, to put together in terms of your thoughts towards me. That is not a relationship that you want. And God many times has had relationships with many people that is so shallow and superficial. People are coming without the right knowledge. But if you are going to love God, you must love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is what he desires. God never designed the faith to be blind. He never expected you to enroll in it with blind, with a blind step. He wanted you to be fully informed, fully convinced, fully knowledgeable, so much so that that allows you to make that step of faith. And that even if you don't know everything, your faith in him bridges that gap. Praise the name of Jesus. God wants to be known and believed beyond reasonable doubt. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 6. This is powerful stuff. In your worship of God, your mind, your logical reasoning... Your thinking faculty must be involved. It's not just emotionalism and empirical feelings. God wants to be known, true and true. Hebrews 11 verse 6, very popular. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, what, exists. We're getting somewhere now. Anyone that would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is what pleases God, your faith in him. But it's not blind faith. Guess what? For you to take that step of faith that draws you to him, you must believe beyond reasonable doubt that he exists. He exists. He's out there. He's not just some image, some idea, some imaginary friend. He's all-powerful, omniscient, and great, and majestic, and created all things. He wants to be known. And he's a rewarder of those who do what? Who diligently seek him. How many of you have watched this show, uh, Gouda Ultimate Search? Right? Imagine you are trying to hunt for a treasure. Maybe the prize amount was, um, it used to be a good show. I don't know what happened to it. Uh, imagine the prize was you get a bag of gold, maybe 10 kg worth of gold. Powerful stuff, right? That's good money. And you're searching for the treasure chest. And you do it so diligently. You are in the wilderness for 30 days. You finally found that treasure chest. Yes, I found it. Now say, oh, great. You labored so well, so diligently. Congrats. But here you go. Here's a stone. That's your price. Wait, what? Why are you giving me a stone? The price, what I was looking for was the, the bag of gold. You're giving me a stone? So when we read this, this text, the reason why I use that illustration is when people read it, they say God rewards those who seek him. And immediately they start to think materially. They start to think, oh, God rewards me with riches and wealth and fame because I sought him out. God is a good God. He will not leave me stranded. Hallelujah. But if you were seeking him, he says, those who seek him, if the treasure was him all along, guess what he rewards you with? With what you are seeking. Himself. Anyone who goes on a journey 
whether you just started or you're about to start, anyone who truly, truly seeks God will find him. And that's why the saying says, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Ask, you will receive. Seek and you will find. This is a principle God is establishing for us. That the one who humbles themselves and truly seeks God out, questioning, is God really out there? And make no mistake, God is not afraid of your questions. The truth like I've been said many times, it's not afraid of questions because it has the answers you're looking for. God, are you out there? <laughs> if you seek him truly, he will reward you with himself. Praise the name of Jesus. And this is the purpose of apologetics. It's, it's a phrase that I coined um, and was inspired by Ravi Zacharias. It's, it's, it's to help the seeker find Apologetics helps the seeker find and helps the found seek. Apologetics helps the seekers find and helps the found seek. It's in, it's in the book that I wrote, Prove It, which uh, I have fantastic news about that, and I'll share with you uh, probably by the end of the service. Uh, so both those who are skeptics looking for some truth Apologetics helps you get to that place where you, beyond reasonable doubt, find the truth. And maybe you are found, and, and what I mean in that term is believers, you are lost, now you're found. Apologetics helps you to seek even more, to know even more, to deepen your knowledge of who this God is and all he is about. What you believe matters, and what matters you must believe. That's what apologetics is about. It actually matters what you believe at the end of the day. It's not just, what do you believe? I don't know. That question will not stand in anymore. Of course, you can't know everything, but concerning the most consequential things in your life, you need to have some answers. You can't live your life carelessly like it means nothing. You need to know. You owe yourself that. So it matters what you believe, but more importantly, what truly matters, you must believe. I'm going to help you explain what apologetics is at the end of the day. And then we're going to just go to, to prove that truly God exists. And I know some of you are wondering how, maybe this is your first experience. Maybe you're just coming to um, find what apologetics is. Maybe this is a refresher for you. You've heard it time and time again. And for some of you, it's going to take you a bit deeper give you some better understanding how to not just know for yourself, but to also answer the questions to people. Because remember, the series is asking for a friend. You're not just asking for a friend to get the answer for you. The answer is for your friend, but it should pass through you, bring some conviction to you. And with that same conviction and persuasion, you pass it on to that friend or that family or that friend in you, whoever it is. Praise the name of Jesus. So bear with me. If it feels like you know this already, great. You're on the right track. And this is your first experience. Bear with me. I, I'm going to make it as simple as possible. I will dumb it down to the simplest way so you know what it is. You can explain exactly as I've said it, and your profiting will appear. Praise the name of Jesus. So let me just say this off the bat, and I'm, I hope time will be on my side. I want to, in this series, take one question, a single question, um, that I will answer after every service. So right before the announcement, after we've prayed, I will answer that question. 
All right, I think, I think it, and this is beyond Q&A. Um, we'll answer the question live, whether it's on Mixler or on YouTube, how do we decide, maybe we do it randomly, or if you recommend that question, you maybe reply on top of it, or you, you know, whatever, you call it out. It's you, you're the ones who decide what question gets answered, um, especially as related to this topic, and I'll answer it, okay? And that's gonna continue uh, even as we go. Just one question because of time. I hope that's fine. Yeah. Great. What is apologetics? Let's write this down, simple definition. What is apologetics? And the reason I'm building this again is because by the time we hit the ground running, <laughs> sorry, I think that phrase gives people PTSD these days now, um, but by the time we, we, we have, um, a, a, you know, when Audacity Conference starts, I, I, sadly, I won't be able to go over these things again. We're just going to go deep into some culturally relevant topics that we need to discuss. We will not be able to lay this foundation. So this is for you to, to help build your understanding of apologetics before we dive into counterculture. All right, I hope that's fine. Yes. What is apologetics? It is the science and art of systematically defending one's faith. No, it's not you apologizing. It's not you saying sorry a thousand times. That's not what it is. It is the science and art of systematically, note these keywords, of systematically defending one's beliefs. So there is something called Christian apologetics, which is what we're doing, but other thoughts and worldviews and belief systems have apologetics as well. So it's not just a Christianity, Christianity thing, it's, it's everyone um, that has a belief system. And even if you claim to not have a belief system, that in itself is a belief system. Okay. I hope that was not too complicated. But yeah, it's the art of systematically defending one's beliefs through logical and reasoned arguments with the aim of persuasion. It is the science and art, underline those two words, it is the science and art of systematically defending one's beliefs, right? How? Through logical, here again, you can see the mind working here, and reasoned arguments. So it's logical and it appeals to reason with the purpose of what? Persuasion, so that you can convince the person who is listening to you. It's not, it's not absent of a goal. When you do apologetics, you're not just doing it just to prove you know. It's to help the other person know what you know, believe what you know. It's a conversion strategy. And that's what you need to know. But let me underline those words. I've said this time and time and again. Science and art simply means this. Science talks about a body of knowledge, right? It's a body of knowledge, the doctrine, the, the language, the semantics, all the knowledge you need on that thing. It's a science. So you need to know. You need to be informed. You need to have the knowledge about this thing, about your faith. You need to know it deep and, and deeper and deeper still. But it's also an art. And that's why a lot of people fail. They think apologetics is just knowing one quote by this apologist or knowing this verse of scripture. No, your approach would always mean a lot. I'm going to spend time on the art today. Your approach matters. How you deliver the message it matters just as much as what the message is. All right? And so you're talking about the presentation. You're talking about the approach of apologetics. I cannot do this teaching without laying the foundational scriptures that guide us on this. And I'll read them very quickly. First Peter chapter 3 from verse 15. 
And we're also going to check out Colossians chapter 4 from verse 5 to 6. Very, very powerful scriptures. Just remember that this one is one verse shy of John 3.16 um, and it's 1 Peter. So 1 Peter 3.15 and Colossians 4.5.6. It follows. Colossians 4.5.6. So just remember, you cannot forget the scriptures. All right. Are you ready? We're going to go to the first one. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. This is what it says. But sanctify, sanctify, reserve, create, revere the Lord in your heart so much so that this is what you do. It says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense. It says, always be ready. How many times should be ready? How often? Always be ready. You, never to be caught on, on, on fret, as we say it. Never to be caught unknowing and without knowledge. Ready to give, always ready to give a defense to how many people? To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's so much to unpack, so little time. But one, the, the, the key things you need to remember from this scripture is it, it, this is a response to the consecration that you have to the Lord. That you've sanctified, you've created a sacred space of the Lord in your heart. He takes the chunk of your priority. He sits at the throne of your heart. Even on the, this game of thrones of things trying to get your attention. He sits at the throne and because of that, he is important. And your defense of your trust in him, your defense of your belief in him must be done to everyone who asks you. People will ask you questions. People will want to know, why do you believe what you believe? And some people might do it obnoxiously, annoyingly, trying to trap you. But you must never be caught on not, you know, without knowledge. You must know your stuff. If you're able to commit so much time to your academic endeavors, you're able to cram, memorize. I, I can't forget that course I did in my 300-level engineering it's a course that when you're going for the exam that morning, everybody knows the drill. Because you've memorized all sorts of formulas you will never use in your life. You've memorized these formulas. Everybody walks like this, solemn, a straight line. If you greet me, ah, good morning. How are you? <laughs> if you mistakenly, <laughs> mistakenly say something, the formula will shift. So you have to be careful. But you've given so much diligence to things like that, to memorize those things. But when it comes to this, the Lord is saying, because of how you sanctified me in your heart, you must always be ready. It's a continuous learning process, a continuous memorizing, continuous preparation, that you must always have the right answers for people. And it has to do with meekness and fear. So you're not doing it with arrogance to prove a point um, obnoxiously, to be arrogant in your approach but to do it with meekness and reference uh, and, and respect. Fear means respect for the person that you're speaking to. And Colossians chapter 5, verse 6 says this. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, to those who are without. That's unbelievers particularly. Redeeming the time. The word redeeming the time can seem vague if you don't know what it actually means. It just simply means make the most out of every opportunity. That's what it means to redeem the time, to buy back time. So every opportunity, you can take advantage of it. Um, you can redeem the time when you use it for the right thing. 
It says, walk in wisdom towards those that are without. And, and this is the art part of apologetics. Not just knowing, but being wise in how you communicate what you know. Are, are you following so far? Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Let it, let it be communicated with grace. We're still talking about the approach. Seasoned with salt. And salt makes things sweet to the taste. It makes things enjoyable. It, it, it appeals to you when you see a meal that is, say, this is roasted chicken. And it's sizzling. It looks nice. But it tells you there's no, no spice in it, no salt. It's just bland. But this other one has salt in it. You definitely go for the one with salt. Because there's just something that appeals when something is seasoned with salt. It's a metaphor for something that is pleasurable, something that is attractive, that not just that it appeals to your senses, but it's attractive in nature, in appearance. That you may know how you ought to answer each person. So it's saying, look, you need to walk with wisdom with people and be able to answer their questions. Guys, people will ask you questions. I hope you know that. Maybe you're already having these questions being asked to you. People will ask you questions. But you must know. And apologetics helps us to do these things. I, I wish I had time to go through the scope of apologetics um, in detail, but this is what apologetics helps you do. It helps you to build your own personal convictions. It helps you to break intellectual barriers that people have, to break them down. And it helps you to be an effective witness of the gospel. And apologetics covers a wide scope of things. You're talking divinity. It covers, number one, divinity. You're talking about God. You're talking about his character. It covers authenticity. When we talk about the Bible's authenticity, the origin of the Bible, can it be trusted? Apologetics covers that. You're talking deity. So when you talk about Jesus, his life, his supremacy, his deity, it covers that. Number four, it covers reality, the universe and the world around us. It covers morality, how we ought to live in a cultural or social cultural space, how we ought to interact with people, what is right, what is wrong. And number six, humanity. So related specifically to human beings. And this is where you talk about the five consequential questions of life. So I hope that's clear. Uh, apologetics helps cover what? What's the first one? Divinity, right? It covers authenticity. It covers deity, reality, morality, and humanity. And when you go to humanity, you find that there are five consequential questions of life. All right? I hope this is not an information overload for you and you're taking it one at a time. There, there are five consequential questions that, that, that concern humanity. And the reason why they're called consequential is because whatever you believe about each of these five things, each of these five questions, the result has dire consequences, all right? If you believe the truth, it has eternal consequences. If we believe what is to be false about those questions, it also has very eternal consequences, but not the good kind, all right? So if there's anything you will remember is that when it comes to the consequential questions of life, if you have the answers to these five questions, you have a gift that no one can take away from you. You have such a precious gift. A precious gift. There are many it will shock you how many people really don't know or not really sure. And what are these five questions? 
Number one, origin. No, not the drink. No, no, no. Focus. Origin. Where did I come from? Where did I come from? Where did all things come from? Where did we originate from? Do you know the answer to that? The second question that comes is, okay, now that I'm here, who am I? You're talking about identity. Who am I? Who are you? What makes me different from the plants and the animals? What is my identity? Am I one just as, you know, made as an accident or, or, or a dynamic explosion of elements and I came to be what I am today? Or am I made in the image of some supreme being? What is my identity? What's your identity? I remember that video, right? <laughs> you guys remember that video? I don't know what happened to that guy. What's your identity? Number three, meaning. Okay, now that I know who I am, why am I here? What's my purpose here on this earth? Why was I created? If you know the answer to that, my goodness, oh, <laughs> then you have things right. The fourth question to ask is morality. How should I live? How should I live? Or how should we live as, live as a community? How should we live? That's the question. And the final thing to ask is, after this life, where do we go? Where do we go from here? Destiny. What is my destiny? And the word destiny is coined from destination. What is the end goal of my life? If you have the questions, the answers, I beg your pardon, to these questions, you have such a precious treasure, I promise you. And maybe you don't know the answers to these questions. I'm telling you, by the time we're done with this teaching series, you will have all your answers. Amen, amen, amen. So the first question, uh, the first, this teaching is going to kind of border around origin. Where did we come from? And is there truly someone who brought us here? Um, and that's what we're talking about. Is there a God out there? Um, I'll just highlight five reasons that I've found. Um, and I remember the very first time I taught this, I gave three reasons. The next time I taught it, I gave four reasons. Now there are five reasons. Um, and I'm going to explain what these reasons are as to why people don't believe in God. Five reasons why many don't believe in God. The first one is this, intellectual, intellectual. People who I've met and people who are around the world who say they don't believe God or they belong to some atheistic um, society, they say it just, it just doesn't make sense logically to us. When you put science beside religion, they seem to be at odds. How can you tell me that a man built an ark and all these species of animals went on the boat? It doesn't make logical sense. How can you tell me it rained so much that it flooded the earth? How can you tell me that some being out there just said, be, and everything came to be? doesn't make sense. What are the mathematical calculations to that? Just some people, they struggle because in their own way, they are too intelligent for such things. These are just fairy tales. 
Come on, people made it up. The Bible is all made up. It's fairy tales. For you to understand things, you need to be scientific, logical. And so this poses a barrier to many of these people. It's not a case where they've been hurt by anyone or anything like that. They just don't know that the Christian faith is not blind. They just don't know that God can be logical or can be reasoned logically. So that's the first show. Number two, emotional. Emotional. And this one is a very dicey thing. By the time we're done, I'm going to show you how to approach each of these people who have these reasons um, in, in their faith. I'm going to give you exactly what each person would need. Um, and that will just give you some direction. So when you're answering your friend uh, these questions that they have, you can identify first and foremost what are the reasons why they don't believe and know the right approach to take. So you identify the reason and you come with your science of apologetics, but more importantly, the art of apologetics. So you, you don't miss a beat. So the emotional reason is this, and it's all too common, all too common, where someone who was somewhere in the faith, in the church, um, and somehow they were hurt. They were hurt by the church. They were hurt. They were betrayed by some leader in the church, by some person who proclaimed to love them. They were hurt. They felt abandoned, neglected, manipulated. They felt silenced. Like they, they didn't have a voice. They, they probably believed God for something for so long. They were in such a deep mess and nothing seemed to be working. Things just got worse even when they started praying, when they started fasting. Maybe you've even experienced this before. And for some, it's even such a tragic thing when you think about it, where they had parents who had been in the faith, who had trusted God, who had served God. And such parents died prematurely, if I'll use that term. And they're like, God, why? Why did you do this to me? Why did you let my parent die? Why did you do this? Why are we going through this? Why are we having a Job-like experience? And you say you are a good God. In fact, I choose not to believe you. You cannot be good and you cannot be real. I choose not to believe you because you hurt me. And for, for this, if you look at it deeply, how can you be hurt by someone who does not exist? So when you look at this, this emotional reason is not really a question of does God exist or not. It's that they know God truly exists, but they're not happy with that God who exists. And so they will rather consciously silence such a God or recreate such a God or box him out somewhere where he doesn't interfere in their space because he's done enough damage already. Are you following my, my train of thought? Someone easily who could have done this was a man called Job in the Bible. That man went through, oh my goodness, he went through a lot. Crazy loss after the next, tragedy upon tragedy. Thankfully, somehow for him, he, he, he believed there was a God. There was no going back on that. But many people have not gotten to a place where they're able to reconcile a God who is watching all these terrible things happen and allowing them, so permitting them to happen and still say he's God. So these are people who have been hurt and I'm going to talk more about that next week. Okay, okay yes, there is a God, but I'm not happy with this God. What do I do about it? I'm going to talk about that some more. But this is a reason for such people, your first approach is, hmm, my brother, how dare you blaspheme against the Lord? You see, it says in the Bible, you have lost that person. 
You've lost the person. If the person tells you, no, I've been hurt so much. I'm in deep pain. Do you know what I've gone through? And you say, my brother, relax. I understand. We go through things all the time. Everybody goes through things. You're not the only one. You are not the only one that goes through these things. Uh -uh. The Bible tells us, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is there. See, it is in the Bible. Newsflash, by the way. <laughs> Newsflash. In case you didn't know, it doesn't truly add up, at least at the first instance, for you to prove that God exists from scriptures. Nah. Because if you try that, they will tell you, I don't believe your Bible is real. I don't believe your Bible is authentic. So whatever you say from this Bible means nothing to me. So many people will try to do it that way, and that's why you've been handicapped. That's why you've not been able to have um, any leeway, any progress. But there are systematic ways to prove God exists, even outside of scriptures, which I will show you. So with such a person, how do you, you know, relate to this person? I'll tell you. And maybe I'll just tell you right away. Appeal to their emotions. The Bible says to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. They are mourning. They've been hurt. They've been betrayed. They've lost things. It's been tragic. You need to be human in that moment with them. Extend the gracious love of God that they've been, they felt like they've been missing all along. This is the time to, to overwhelm them with that love. This is the time to say, look, I know what you've gone through. And the Lord warned us about that in this life you will face many tribulations. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He never promised the smoothest, best life. But he is there in spite of the troubles. And then you show them love. You give them a big hug. You give them a big kiss, kiss on the cheek. And, and you just embrace them and rejoice and, and mourn with them. I beg your pardon. And let them know that, look, it's okay. And you hold their hand. And you start to give them the truth. Feed them the truth little by little. For such a person, it's not really that they don't believe, but they choose not to believe. Number three, cultural reasons. Cultural. Cultural. A lot of people don't believe in God because they've been influenced by the culture around them. It's basically about what they've, the kind of family they've been brought up into, the kind of background. A lot of people don't believe in God because their parents don't believe in God. Simple as that. A lot of people don't believe in God because they're seeing things like, oh, what kind of God frowns at a woman having an abortion? What kind of God will say that a woman does not have a right to her own body? What kind of God says that, that men and women cannot you know, decide who they choose to love, whether it's of the same sex or otherwise? What kind of God does that? And, and cultural things around them, contemporary issues, make them believe that this God is not worth believing in or he doesn't even exist. When they see the chaos, when they see the bad things happening, they just choose to believe that God does not exist. Number four, volitional. Number four, volitional reason. Volitional. Now, this one out of the rest is one that I find um, very, very common. Very, very common. And it's, it's another way to coin it is Rebellion. That's what it is. It is rebellion. It's a conscious decision to rebel. A conscious decision to push back God. It's saying, look, God, and it's from a moral perspective. God, I want to be able to live my life the way I want to live it without your interference. I don't want you in my business. I don't want you here. Stay up there. Do your thing, but don't come into my own business. Don't tell me what is good, what is right, what is wrong. Don't tell me you will judge me. I don't care for that. 
Let me just push you out of the way so that I can do whatever I want. I can sleep whatever I want. I want to be whoever I want. I want to steal whatever I want. I want to kill whoever I want. I want to, I want to be fraudulent to whoever I want without you being in my business. So people realize that there is a God. Such people know there is a God or have an idea of a God, but they don't want this God to be there. Sometimes they even have false ideas of this God. They recreate God in a bit of idolatry. So volitional is, I don't want you in my business so you don't exist. I choose to believe that you don't exist because I don't want some big guy up there coming into my business. And we're going to look at um, something about these guys in Romans chapter 1. The fifth reason that I find people choose not to believe in God is spiritual reason. Spiritual reason. Spiritual reason. The Bible clearly tells us that there are people whom the devil has blinded from seeing the glorious light of the gospel in Christ Jesus. He's blinded their eyes. So it's a spiritual thing. This is not that, oh, there's not enough information around them or, you know, that they've, they've been hurt or not hurt. It's just a case that the devil specifically has taken advantage of places in their lives and has blinded them consistently. And the solution to this is not you saying, you see, the Lord said, you open scriptures, John chapter this, you know, verse 1, or you bring some quotes by some apologies. That's not the way. For, to, to solve this one, there needs to be some supernatural intervention. And I'll explain this as we go further. But let me go back a bit to volitional. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm telling you, any kind of person you will ever meet, it's either one or, or multiple of these. And, and that's probably the sixth reason. I, I didn't mention it, so it's not so much for you. But if there were a sixth reason to be hybrid, it could be multiple, a combination of one or more of these reasons. And, and everyone you'll find would, would always be a combination of these reasons. It, it, it doesn't pass this, really. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. So what we've done, we've profiled the categories of people who either don't believe God exists or are doubtful that God exists, or choose not to believe that he exists. We've profiled them. So that makes it easier for us to know how to approach. Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. Powerful, powerful scripture. Are you with me? We're going to read till verse 23. And I'll read it as quickly as I can. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who do what? Who suppress the truth? In unrighteousness. What do they do? They suppress. That's the key word. So it's not that the truth is absent. There is truth present. But they do what? They suppress. They say, God, okay, I know you're real. And I know you have a moral authority over me. But I choose to rebel against that authority and box you up somewhere. I, don't want, I want to suppress you. So they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God, the evidence of God is manifest in them. It's manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. There are signs everywhere. Their conscience itself speaks of God's existence. They know it. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, look at that. His attributes... His invisible attributes are clearly seen. That almost seems like, like a paradox, but it's true. That even though you cannot see the wind, 
Even though you cannot see gravity, the effect can be felt. You can know that, look, this was caused by wind. This was caused by gravity. You can know just because you cannot see it does not mean it does not exist. So they could see from the creation of the world, his invisible attributes were clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And so they are without excuse. I say this a lot of time, that God's greatest evangelist, one of God's greatest evangelists is nature. When you look at the things God created, we're going to talk about this. It's one of the arguments for God's existence. When you look at the things that are created, you can tell there is a God. There is a God. You must be silly or blinded to not know that there is a God. There is a God. And he's saying these kinds of people, they know. They know. So they are not without excuse. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did. They did not glorify him as, as God. They did not glorify him as Lord and King, as authoritative in their lives. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Have you ever heard people that try to sound so smart, but they're actually so stupid? Have you heard such people? They try to use calculations, deep thoughts. Ah, I'm deep. And they try to rationalize things. And like, Bro, this is unnecessary and just makes you more stupid than intelligent. And this is what people do. They, they become futile in their thinking. They try to create a God that is okay. I, I call it the, the, the idolatry of the comfortable God. People try to create a God that is comfortable for them. A God that is okay with everything they do. And if that is the case, you have made yourself God. That's what it is. You have made yourself God. Because if you have a God that is comfortable with everything you do, then that God is not a God. You are the God. They did not glorify him as God. They were already thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, this is it. They were professing to be wise, but yet they became fools. So they were wise even according to the standards of the world. And you see many of these people who have claimed to be one of the most intelligent atheists, the most intelligent Scientologists, whatever it is, they have these titles of being very intelligent. But when, when you zoom in, you realize that many of the things they believe are actually foolish. How can you tell me that we all came to be by a, a we came from a singularity? And his singularity just spontaneously exploded in, in a big bang. And everything we see now and touch and experience was created from an accidental explosion, a, a spontaneous explosion. And everything went in its place. It was ordered. Everything was organ organized from an explosion. How? And you say, you know, we came from stardust. As that happened, the stardust you know, traveled to the earth when the earth was formed and we became primordial slime. And from there, after millions of years, we evolved from primordial slime to single-celled organisms, to multi-celled organisms, to reptiles, to fishes. We became dinosaurs. We became monkeys and primates and became homo uh, erectus, homo habilis, homo sapiens. And you think about all of that and you're like, it seems to be knowledgeable, it seems, it seems to be wise, but when you look at it from a logical standpoint, it holds no weight. And that's why the evolution theory will forever remain a theory. It's not a law. 
It's not a principle. It's a theory. Someone guessing. It's someone trying to examine. How can you be a scientific... I'm sorry, this, this thing's get to me. How can you be a scientist and claim a theory that you, you claim to have come from science, yet it didn't go through the scientific method? The scientific method says you must have observed those experiments and the outcome of them for you to know that this was you know, the result, scientifically speaking. But how can you say something evolved over millions of years when you were not even there to see it? It's not scientific. It, you've literally contradicted yourself. In fact, logically speaking, if a company like Apple says, you know what, we, we, we've been trying so hard, we just launched the iPhone 14. We've been trying so hard to, to create a new product, one that's never been in the market. Let's try something. Guys, come. Bring that machine here. Bring that machine here. We're going to plant C4s and bombs to these machines so that when it explodes, perhaps, as the explosion is coming, wood will come, glass will come, semiconductor diodes will come, a, a glass screen will come, aluminum casing will come, and boom, a new product is formed. <laughs> no, it, 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 it will never work like that. And logically speaking, how does a chaotic, disorganized explosion create order and organization? It, it does not add up. And so people become, they profess that they are wise, but they're actually fools. And, and they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And it's talking about idolatry. They, they, it, it just talking about people like the Jews who came out from the Red Sea and, and said, you know what, let's create a God that we will say is the God that brought us out. Like, who does that? And you bring your earrings, you, you melt it, make a golden calf, an animal, and worship it, and say, this is the God that brought me out. Do you know how foolish you have to be? It's not done. Nobody wants to write a book and say, you know what? Let me just have paper. Let me just throw paper and ink. You know, just get ink, paper, throw it up. Perhaps the writing will now line up with the pages and everything will just align and form to be a book. And I want to print one million copies, so we have to try it again. And those one million copies must come exactly the same way. It's impossible. It's an insult to authors around the world. They'll tell you, what do you mean? Do you know how long it took me to organize the chapters, write the words, arrange the pages, bind them, print? Do you know how much money went into this? To print multiple copies of the exact same thing and you tell me it was by accident? And many of these same authors... <laughs> wrote books that prove God does not exist. It's, inc it's incredible. And so people choose not to believe. That's, that's on the volitional aspect. But guess what? You can explain to people by, by just logical arguments that God truly exists. And I'm going to give you four, uh, five actually of those arguments. I'm going to give you five arguments that you can use to prove that God exists. The fifth one, I'll tell you what it is. I've never taught it before, but um, it's a very powerful one I see um, all through scriptures. Um, you're going to see that. So the first argument, I'll go through it quickly. Uh, if you don't understand it for the very first time, it's okay. You can always go back to it, but I'll, I'll try to explain as much as I can. The first argument is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument is from the word cosmos. The cosmological argument, that's the first argument. 
And to be honest, I find this argument to be very convincing. I find it to be super convincing. Um, anyone who especially is inclined to the scientific, um, this is a very powerful tool to talk to them, uh, to witness to them, all right? Um, this is basically what it means. I, I would summarize, I would, I would tell you the steps and I'll summarize them. It simply means this, I, I'll tell you the steps. Um, it's also known as the argument from cause. The argument from cause, from cause, cause and effect. The argument from cause and effect. So this is what he says. Just pay attention. <laughs> the first point is things exist, right? Things exist. It is possible for things not to exist. Agreed. Now, you can probably think of a thing or two that doesn't exist. It's just fiction. You see it in the movies, and you're like, ah, this thing doesn't really exist, right? So there are things you know don't exist, and we know that there are things that exist. The third point is this. Whatever has the possibility of non-existence, but yet it exists, has been caused to exist. So everything has the possibility of not even existing in the first place, but if it exists, if something truly exists, then it must have been caused. Something must have caused it to exist. It didn't make itself self-existent. Number four, something cannot bring itself into existence since it must exist to bring itself into existence, which is illogical. Do you understand that point? So for something to exist, it means something caused it. But if you want to say that you know, it caused itself, that means it must have first existed to cause itself to exist. I hope you are following so far. It's not hard. It's not hard at all. It's, it's, it makes sense, right? This is how you make conversations. This is how you deal with it. This is, look, it doesn't, it's not just a way to make you seem smart, but it's a way to appeal to people's logic because God can be understood through logical reasoning and with your heart, your soul, and your mind. Do you understand? So if something exists, it couldn't have caused itself to exist. There must have been something that pre-existed that thing to make it so. Make sense? All right, let's go. Then also there's something called the, fini the finitude of history, um, which goes against an infinite regression. So I'll explain what that means. It, there cannot be an infinite number of causes to bring something into existence, right? An infinite regression of causes ultimately has no initial cause which means there is no cause of existence. And since the universe exists, it must have a cause um, at the end of the day. So if you say something has an infinite regression that, okay, what created this ap Apple iPad is a human being. What created this human being is, let's say, Big Bang. What created the Big Bang? Singularity. What created the singularity? That, that, that we can't tell. It just keeps going on and on and on and on forever and ever. That's not true. If that's the case, then it means it doesn't have an initial cause. So everything that, was, that existed must have a point where it was caused into existence. Do you understand? Right? So he, the argument, you now bring the universe into the question. If the universe that we see around us exists, it means the, the universe is not creator. Something caused the universe to exist. Are you following the argument? Therefore, there must be an uncaused cause of all things. 
So if the universe was caused, there must have been something that was uncaused, that was self-existent, something that was uncaused, an unmovable mover, an uncaused cause. The uncaused cause must be God. Must be God. Whatever that thing you can think of that caused everything that in itself was not caused, it is God. So this appeals to logical. It's such a powerful argument, I promise you. When you have a conversation with someone truly who understands the implications of cause and effect, they'll believe you. There's also a law called law of biogenesis. It's a law of biogenesis. Those of you who did biology, you probably know this or something related to this field. It simply says, in this natural material world, life comes from pre-existing or previously existing life of its own kind. If you see a lion cub, guess where it came from? It came from a lion. People have tried to say we can use random non-living biochemicals to create life, and it has never happened. We've never seen a case where a non-living thing creates a living thing. So for you to see life, you see life in plants, you see life in animals, you see life in human beings, there must be a cause that is living. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So that's the cosmological argument. When you go through the cosmos and the things around you, when you see these things, you just have to know that, look, these things were caused to be. They were caused to exist. The second argument, I'm going through this as fast as I can because of time. The second argument is the ontological argument. I find this to be one of the least used arguments, but it's equally very important. I'll explain what it means. It's, um, it's an argument from greatness or majesty. I'll just put it that way. The ontological argument begins with the claim that God, by definition, is infinitely great. Therefore, no entity can surpass God's greatness. God, in other words, must be the greatest conceivable being. And if you, if you could conceive of a greater being, then that greater being will be God. So this is just talking about the extent of greatness. If there's anything you could think about that is the greatest thing in the, in the entire world, maybe to you, the greatest thing in the entire world is a celebrity. <laughs> and then you now think, oh, someone who could be greater than that celebrity is the president of that country. If you can now think beyond the president or the emperor of, of a nation or a, a, a country, and you say to someone greater than that, some supreme force, maybe the law of gravity, that binds every human being together, that, that, that restricts us, there, there has to be something greater than that law of gravity. It's, the, the law is saying, as far as you go, when you think of the greatest of the greatest of the greatest, by definition, the greatest of the greatest of the greatest is God. So while this um, many times might not be the, the only argument that stands alone, you, it can be supplementary to another argument like the cosmological argument. So when you start started to talk about the uncaused cause, that uncaused cause has to be the greatest of all things, and that greatest of all things is God. So it usually goes hand in hand with another argument. So that is the ontological argument, O-N-T-O, logical. That's what it means. Then the, the third argument is the moral argument. Argument from judgment or from morality, the moral argument. The moral argument is very simple, right? And I'll explain it this way. Everyone across the world somehow 
has an inclination or a moral compass innately to just know the difference between right and wrong. Like wherever you go in the world, there's just some basic things. And of course, there are things that have been shaped by culture, by experience, by need that, that might now be morally gray or morally questionable. But there are some basic things in terms of morality that, that everyone somehow just knows is right or wrong. And the question is, where did we get that from? Where did we get the sense of right and wrong? Where did we get the sense that you cannot just throw a baby into water and kill a baby? Where did we get the sense that it's, it's wrong to steal something from someone? Where did we get that sense from? So the moral argument is, if there is a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And I'm telling you, a lot of people appeal to this argument. It's such a powerful argument that you can go wherever you go and you just know that, look, there's a higher standard, there's a higher law that kind of regulates all human beings everywhere in the world. And that higher law must have come from a higher being. All right? A being outside of ourselves must have put this law in us. And so that's the moral argument. I wish I could spend more time, but I'll just cap it there. And one of the most powerful, personally, this is one that resonates with me so deeply. Uh, it's the teleological arguments. Just think of tele, like television, um, and say teleological. Teleological argument. And it's the argument from design. Right? The argument from design. Um, this is what it seems. This is what it says, basically. Whenever you look at the artifacts of the things that are in the world, and you see all that has been created, when you look at them intrinsically, if there's any sort of order to them, or pattern, or design, or intelligence to them, then they must have come from an intelligent designer. There's a, there's a case of, uh, and I wrote this in the book, the, the caveman and the watch, where a caveman has been used to seeing a rock all his life, but somehow a, a watch fell from an airplane, you know, and he sees this watch, but he can see that this watch has different parts made of different materials. And if you twist one of these knobs, it turns something. So when you, when you do it, there's design in it, and the hands of the watch keep moving and moving. You could clearly see that, look, this watch has some design. And hence, there must be a designer. That's what the theological argument says. That's what it is. Um, there, there's a principle called the all-or-nothing unity. And this principle says that unless all of the critical parts are in the right place at the right time and in the right amount, none of the expected functions is attained. And those of you who do programming and coding, you can attest to this that unless the code is done the right way, with the right amount of words and codes, and done at the, written at the right place where it's supposed to be written in order, that thing will not work. Those of you who are in engineering, you know how this is. If you misplace, mistakenly place the terminal of your diode or your, or your uh, capacitor on that variable board as you're trying to solder, it won't work. So there are things that need to be in the right place at the right time, the right amount for it to function. For, for us to be in a place like we are on the earth, we're called the Goldilocks zone, such that we are not too close to the sun that all life perishes, and too far from the sun that all life freezes to death. But just in the right position, 
we have the right atmosphere to accommodate life. We, we happen to have this layer, protective layer above us to protect us from the harmful rays of the sun somehow. And all these things, you know, scientists will call them um, spontaneous coincidences, right? Dynamic coincidences. That all these things just sort of happened to be what they are as they are. But anyone who looks at it carefully will say, look, this thing is too precise, too orderly, you know, that, that we cannot just say it, it just came to be like that. There, there was order, there was thought to this thing. How do we have day and night every day? Who controls it? Who controls it? Who makes sure that by this time we should expect to see the sun? And at this time the sun should, you know, you know and, and of course we know that that's by the rotation of the earth around the sun um, on its axis. And then why do we have seasons? We can predict by the end of this time we have winter. At this time, we have spring. At this time, we have summer. At this time, we have fall. You can predict, you can prepare. It's orderly. And we see that then scientists will say it's revolution of the earth around the sun. But there's order. You see it. You see it. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It, the seasons, the, the time of day, you see plants grow and how they reproduce. It's God. How, how do animals act the way they do, where they can protect their young? where they, their young grow up and they know that it's time for them to be on their own, independent, and raise their own family. Who coordinates that? Who does that? In the air constituents, we have the right amount of everything that somehow the plants give out oxygen, which we need to take in, and we give out carbon dioxide, which they need to take in. Like, think about it. Is this an accident? There was thought to this thing. And see, when you talk about the teleological argument, it just tells you, look, that creation demands a creator. Design demands a designer. The invention gives evidence of an inventor. The order you see around gives evidence of an organizer. When you see sequential, consistent, complex processes, they give credence to a consistent and complex designer. That's what it's saying. And you can break it down into nature and biology. When you talk of nature, there are things I've talked about. The rotation of the earth, the position of the earth, the you know, animals, air constituents, and things like that. When you talk about biology or human biology, when you look at yourself, you yourself are such a powerful evidence that God exists. I wish I could list all the number of things. I, I list all of these things in, in the book called Prove It. Um, from your eyes to your brain and how it works, your brain has thousand, a million times more cells and, and, and what they call them, neurons, which, which create electrical signals that are some of the most powerful mainframe com computers in the world. Your processing speed is faster than any computer ever created. That's interesting. That your breathing, you don't think to breathe. That even in your sleep, your breathing happens. Your heart keeps beating. What regulates it? What does that? that? That you have these ridges on your fingers because without them, you won't be able to grip things. Like, like think about it, guys. You have this thing here called the epiglottis. I, I love that thing. I've never seen it before. Um, but this is how it functions. You have a anosophagus. You have your trachea. But what happens is at the slightest detection of food, the passageway that goes to your lungs and the passageway that goes to your stomach, there's a flap, like a gateway, 
that locks in. That's why some of you, when you basically drink carelessly, you, you start to, it feels like the water or whatever you drank entered your lungs. You're gasping for air. It's it maybe you, you subconsciously, um, you know, tricked your epiglottis or did something like that. But ideally, once it senses food, it literally closes um, the, the place where it goes to your respiratory system and allows the food or drink go to your digestive system. It's incredible. You don't say epiglottis, it's time. Are you ready? You don't, it automatically does that and it mirrors what you have, what you have as a barrier, the automatic barrier when you're going to a parking lot or a secure estate where as you're going, it opens for you. Like, that does, that's how we, we process the things. The, the way our eyes work, we've used that as a blueprint for the camera. Like, oh my goodness. That when you're afraid, there is something that's produced in you, adrenaline, it kicks in to protect you. That's what happens when a mother sees their child almost under a car and they can lift the car. Like, where does that come from? You know, I, was, I, I had plans to write a book. And the title of the book was going to be How to Prove God Exists from Sex. I may still write it. <laughs> but guys, no, no. God exists. <laughs> I, I'm not just talking in terms of experience. I'm talking about just understanding the, the process involved. That, that round pegs fit in round holes. Like, and that from one thing, there is this that leads to that and the pleasure and then leading up to the conception stage of how the, 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 the embryo is formed and how it grows and when it's born. That, that process blows my mind. It blows my mind. If you think about your bodily organs and how they function, <sighs> God exists, guys. You'd be a fool. You'd be a fool to think otherwise. And, and here's the thing. If there's anything you've gotten from what I've said, the very fact, hmm? if there's anything for you to remember, the very fact that you, as a human being, cannot create another thing that has life in itself. It tells you that you could not have created you. And there has to be someone greater than you that created you. Even though we've gone through the process of cloning, we've advanced the technology, we can clone animals now. I'm not sure if we've been able to clone humans yet. But we've cloned animals successfully. But guess what? The clone doesn't have life. It cannot move, it cannot breathe, it cannot think. So there has to be something beyond us that put these things in place. When we see ourselves invent things and create things, is it testament to the fact that we are like the one who created us? That we are literally in his image. We can, we can create as well, but we are not God. There's someone who is above us, more powerful than us, that put us here and that gave us, made us who we are. And if it was all evolution, at the end of the day, who governed the evolution process? Who made the evolution process so, so orderly? And, and, and I know people try to say that, oh, if there was a big bang, then God was the one who caused the big bang. No, no. Don't, don't even go that direction. Big bang is a whole other theory um, that is just anti-God, right? You can't mix the two. It's either God created the beginning, the, you know, the world, or he didn't, right? So at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, look, there has to be a designer greater than us that created life. And when you think of human reasoning, free will, 
It's just a testimony that, look, there is someone beyond us um, that created us. And the fifth argument, and I'll wrap up with this, is the supernatural argument. The argument from the metaphysical. The supernatural argument. And it's the argument from the metaphysical. For those of you who did philosophy, you would know what metaphysical is. It just means beyond the physical. Um, and think about it, guys. What better way to prove God exists by actual supernatural encounters with God that, that go beyond natural things that we see in the world? And, and unlike the other arguments that I've seen, um, this one some, many times is more spontaneous, right? It's not as organized, it's not as deterministic as the other ones. You can literally roll out the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, but this one is more spontaneous, many times left to God's sovereignty and will. And, and let me just give you examples of what this argument does. And, and this is where the purpose of apologetics culminates. Because while you might start on a logical point, from a logical um, you know, start point, you must conclude on a supernatural end. There must be a supernatural conclusion. All right? So that's how it goes. So when you talk about supernatural arguments, you're talking about salvation. Right? So when the Spirit of the Lord convicts the heart of a person to save them, that's, that's one way to prove God exists. It, it just happens. It can be under the teaching of, of the word, just something so simple. I remember the story of, of um, you know, what was his name? Charles Spurgeon, who was in a church in, in England and just heard the words, God so loved the world, time and time and again, and it struck a chord with him. It was not, he heard it all his life, but that moment there was a supernatural encounter that changed his life forever. And, and you're talking about miracles. Hebrews 2, verse 3 to 4, talks about how God confirmed the words with signs and wonders. And, and this has helped me in my evangelical ministry um, so much that I can walk into a room and even as I finish preaching, I can say who has a need for a healing in their knee. By, by word of knowledge, I know that someone has a pain in their knee. And the person says yes, and I was like, I want to get rid of this and heal you right now by the power of God, proving to you that God exists and his power is alive. Would you like me to pray for you? Of course you want to play that football match you need your knee to be better. You say, please, do whatever you can. I've tried everything. And you pray and the knee is healed. Guess what that does? There is a confirmation of all that you've been saying that truly there is a power beyond the natural. And you're talking encounters, dreams, visions, kind of like what happened with Paul on his way to Damascus. Um, and you're talking about hunger, where some people um, also just have this desire, a transcendent desire to know God, to want to be... Um, filled with something bigger and better. And so that's the supernatural argument. It's, it's not really much of an argument, but uh, it's just an ex more of an experience that people can have. And it's also and something you can initiate, um, especially with miracles and the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and that can convict people that God truly exists. So in matching your arguments with the intellectual person, person that has intellectual barriers, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument works. For the person who, of course, everything must be concluded on a spiritual note. For the person with emotional reasons, reassurances and the supernatural approach works. Reassure them in love and the supernatural. For the, the person with cultural reasons, reassure them with the moral uh, argument. Um, those with volitional reasons, the supernatural. Um, and so that they are humble, you know, um, humbled 
enough to see the truth. Um, just like a man like Paul, who was humbled by that encounter and, you know, chose to say, you know what, God, I want you back in my life. And then on the spiritual note, of course, same supernatural. The one who has been blinded by the enemy needs to have the authority of Christ um, executed in that moment to, to disrupt the activity of the enemy in that person's life. So where does this leave you? And, and I'm wrapping up the teaching here. What are some of the next steps for you to do beyond this teaching? I want you to reassure yourself in God, logically and spiritually. I want you to go beyond this teaching and, of course, cautiously find out more ways to, to show that God truly exists. I want you to build that conviction in your heart that nothing can ever prove otherwise. Build, reassure yourself, logically and spiritually. Point number two is I want you to help others see God. So think of one of these arguments. Try to profile someone that you know, a friend. Profile them, someone who you know is doubtful or does not believe. And find out where do they fit in those categories, those profiles. And then you apply one of the arguments. Practice it and help them see God. And the third one, and I'd love to hear your testimonies. Tell me how that goes. Uh, the third one is do away with resources or influences that can trigger doubts to your faith. So maybe you're subscribed to some channel or you're following someone on social media who um, just has no, no regard and disregards God and the church. Um, kindly you know, block yourself from such influences because you know, the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Praise the name of Jesus. I hope this was beneficial for you. I know it felt like a marathon, but um, I want to go into deeper things next week that concern the character of God. And so I had to make sure this was a good foundation that we had. All right, so I'm going to ask for the question, and I'll need your help. So if there's a question right now, I'll be glad to answer it and then wrap up with a prayer. Yes, all right, so we have um, a flow of thought with several questions, right? And this is from, okay, more questions are coming in. But this I, is can from, I answer one? Uh, I can only no, answer, only one, answer question. one Only one question. Only one question. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Um, what's the difference between doubt and fear? I had answers, but the sheer confidence of opposing views gets to me and sort of robs me from enjoying the truth. How do we live in the freedom of the truth? without fear that one day to be debunked? Hmm. Very good question. Um, I started out with what's the difference between doubt and fear, and how do we get to live in the faith that we have if you know, there's always this fear that somehow one day someone will come up with something so radical and we stop believing. Um, so here's what I would say. Um, doubt, hmm? doubt many times can creep in just like thoughts can creep in and it could be inspired by anything at all doubts can come because of some experience you're going through some new information you had maybe someone who was so pragmatic and eloquent and said the wrong things and that contradicts your faith and you are questioning things doubt can come but your response to the doubt is to not just silence it and sweep it under the rug is to get sufficient evidence to prove why that thing is not so you owe it to yourself. The point of apologetics is to help the found seek, remember. So if there's doubt and the shadow of doubt cast upon your heart, you need to go the extreme of to get the answers in the right places. Talk to me, talk to your pastor, talk to, uh, get resources that you think will be very helpful for you. But you must trash those wrong ideologies. 
And I need you to be proud. Remember, at the end of the day, this month is a pride month for us in the sense that we are proud of what we believe. We've examined it. We've, I mean, some of the people that, that are, if you look at the Christians around the world, um, you know, many Christians around the world are some of the most intelligent people in their field. In the corporate world, they're some of the most brilliant people, business leaders you ever meet. So if they believe something as such, it, it, it's not because they are foolish or they are blindsided. Do you understand? Um, a lot of scientists, you know, when you talk about people like uh, Pascal, when you talk about Tesla, when you, um, Faraday, I beg your pardon, and some of these great scientists, many of these people actually believe God existed. So um, when we talk about this, we're not, we're not people of blind faith. We know what we believe, and what we believe helps us in, in that day. So the idea that you see is that while you hold on to faith, and you try to hold on to what you believe, faith in turn holds on to you when you can't hold on any longer. And so it's, it's for you to do your homework, learn all you can, um, to debunk falsehood and allow truth tr thrive in your heart and walk boldly once you've, you've gotten that information, you're convinced beyond reasonable doubt, walk in it such that nothing can penetrate, that build walls around you that reassure you. And, and us doing this teaching series is one way of putting a fence around you um, not to assume that you know everything and you're fine, but to help refresh what you've already known or teach you what you never really knew. So um, don't be afraid. Be proud of what you know, um, that even if there's any new information or anyone who wants to say this and say that, you don't just have knowledge, you have an experience. It's not just, I know God, that God exists, but you know him like you know your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Um, like you know your brother your sister there's a relationship there so it's not an imaginary friend there is relationship and that's something to be proud about be proud about the one that you love and who loves you all right i hope that helps with your answer um, and of course we'll take more questions when we have the q a but remember next week we're going deeper we're going stronger and all to the glory of god i want you to i am super confident that this has been a blessing to you Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.